The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you think about the 2020 campaigns, the first Russian information operation that we detected that was targeting that electoral cycle was exposed in December 2019. Uh, we worked with both CNN and Clemson University to, to detect it, and it was targeting Black audiences in the U.S. using an NGO in Ghana, where most people who were handling the account did not know anything about the operation. That, again, is the same tactic that we see with those full media outlets and, you know, NABC and Peace data. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, June 24th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our podcast on our online information ecosystem. This week, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Camille Francois, the chief innovation officer at Graphica, about a new report released by her team earlier this month on an apparent Russian influence operation aimed at so-called alt-tech platforms like Gab and Parler. A group linked to the Russian internet research agency Troll Farm has been posting far-right memes and content on these platforms over the last year. But how effective has their effort really been? What does the relatively small scale of the operation tell us about how foreign interference has changed in the last four years? And has the media's, and the public's, understanding of information operations caught up to that changing picture? One note before we begin. Camille references the ABC framework for understanding information operations during our conversation. That's referring to a framework she developed where operations can be understood along three vectors. Manipulative actors, deceptive behavior, and harmful content. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 24th. Information operations, then and now. Camille, it is great to have you back on. It is pretty much impossible to keep track of all the reports you've been releasing on information operations on social media in the past year. Um, So we're not going to try to cover them all. But we did want to talk about a report you all released earlier this month that is a particularly interesting one, maybe tells us a few things about how this space has evolved since the Russian operations in 2016. To start at the beginning, can you just sort of give us an overview of those operations you reported on in your most recent report, which is titled uh, Posing as Patriots? Yes, for sure. And thank you. Thank you again for for having me on the podcast. So 
In Posing as Patriots, we are following up on an investigation that we had published during the U.S. 2020 election. And it's an investigation that looks into an effort by Russian actors to target far-right American audiences on alternative social media platforms, specifically on Gab, on Parler, and on Patriots.win. Now, in this specific campaign, we are seeing a lot of narratives around voter fraud, racial inequality, and police violence, a lot of critique of the government's response to COVID-19, uh, and a lot of very racist attacks on uh, Harris and Biden. The thing that was also particularly interesting in that operation is we see these accounts using uh, a lot of political cartoons. And uh, there was also a staged incident, it seems, that was documented in a photo series where we see a person in Times Square in April uh, handing out rolls of uh, toilet paper with Biden's face printed on it. So this was a Russian information operation targeting far-right US audiences, both in the lead-up to and after an American presidential election. I am having, and <laughs> as a French person, you can laugh at my pronunciation here, uh, deja vu. Um, <laughs> you were also involved in writing one of the reports that the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence commissioned on the report on Russian interference in 2016. And so I'm wondering if you can talk to us about the similarities and differences between this latest report on Russian operations around 2020 and the one that you did in or post-2016. Yeah. So let's start with the déjà vu part. So we believe that the group behind this operation is linked to the group that's known as the Internet Research Agency. And I say this because, of course, that group has evolved a lot since 2016, right? What it looks like today in 2021 is, is very different than what it looked like when it was operating in 2016. So that specific Russian group does have a history of targeting groups on the fringe of the political spectrum in the U.S. with messages that divide and that inflame. And it also always has been interested in using social media and other technologies to organize real life events. So for instance, in the spring of 2015, the IRA was already using social media to attract people to Times Square in New York. And in that case, they had run a campaign that was promising people free hot dogs if they would show up. And they were actually using publicly accessible cameras in, in Times Square to monitor if people would indeed show up. So there's a lot of déjà vu in this operation. And it kind of reminds us that these actors are, are consistent in their objectives and that they love Times Square. <laughs> I mean, there's also a lot that different, right? This time around in 2021, there's a lot more attention to information operations, and it's actually much harder for these campaigns to be successful. So that drives new tactics and new preferences on their end. I think that's one of the reasons why we see them doubling down on using alternative social media platforms like Gab and Parler or forums like those niche forums. We definitely want to dig into the specifics of what it means that these operations are using sort of niche platforms. So before we, we do that, I did want to follow up on what you mean by how it's harder for these operations to be successful now. Like what what does that mean? Like how how are you measuring success and how are you measuring the lack of success that you're now seeing? Yeah, I think um, there, there are many different ways to, to answer that question, but let, let me take an easy one. An easy way to measure the success of our defensive efforts is to think about how long the accounts are active before they are detected and taken down. 
And so if you think about the campaign that was targeting the U.S. 2016 election, one of the reasons why it had quite a bit of impact is those accounts had been online for many years before they got detected. And therefore, they had curated real audiences of real people who were engaging with their messaging. And so some of the most successful trolls in that sort of 2016 operation, by the time they were taken down, they had a lot of real followers, they had actual influence. And, you know, when they were doing, for instance, online jokes, they were even cited in the media. So one way to think about, you know, are we being better at defense is to think about, is the life cycle of these accounts shorter? And do we detect them before they have an opportunity to gain these followers and to craft, you know, their influence online? And the answer here is definitely yes, right? So most of the operations that have been detected in 2020, you know, we say those accounts do not have large followings. And one of the reasons is because it takes a little bit of time to curate followers and to curate influence online. And so if you catch these operations earlier, you prevent them from being more impactful down the road. That's one way you can think about impact of defensive efforts. So let's talk about scale really quickly, because to follow up on this idea of impact and success, how many accounts were involved here? I think it was a pretty small scale and, and how much traction and exposure did they get? And I guess this leading question is heading to, you know, I don't want, I don't want to be flippant, but how much did this matter? Like, I don't want to undermine that you did this report and the value of your work, but how much traction is this getting? And do you think that it really would have any substantive impact? Yeah, that's a great question. And the impact question, again, is is really difficult, right? Like, how do you decide what is an impactful operation? We often turn to, to size, right? And what's the number of accounts involved and how many real people engage with that content? And that's one way to think about it. It's very helpful when we assess the impact of operations that are designed to really spread a message amongst audiences online using fake accounts. But there are also other types of operations that are pursuing other goals, right? They might be, for instance, much more targeted and designed to incite real-world violence. And for these operations, the real question isn't really like how many accounts did we see, uh, but who exactly engaged with this content and what did they do as a result of that? So you can have an operation that's dangerous because there's a series of fake accounts with a lot of online influence and their ability to sort of inject messaging in the conversation is really high. Or you can have an operation that's dangerous because it is really a handful of accounts, but the people who are engaging with it are engaging with it deeply and the content or the intent of the operation might be more dangerous. Now, the good news is, indeed, the operation that we documented was, was a fairly small one, and it didn't seem like many people on these forums actually engaged with the accounts. And as the accounts became increasingly violent in their messaging, what we actually saw is people pushing back, right? So either they said, wow, this is really bad content, this meme is stupid, it looks like it's coming for a troll, or they are actually sometimes saying, like, this is super aggressive, watch out, it could be a trap from law enforcement, which is always quite interesting to see these conversations unfold. The idea that people on these forums think that trolls posting as part of an information operation are potentially law enforcement is a a nice little through the looking glass moment, I think. I know. They should read Lawfare a little bit more to understand <laughs> how this works. So there there is another really interesting aspect of 
what you identify here that has to do with the interaction between journalism and information operations. So the the report states that the group that coordinated this is also behind something called the Newsroom for American and European-Based Citizens, uh, which was a fake right-wing media outlet that Grafica and Reuters exposed in October 2020. And part of what that outlet did was recruit unwitting freelance writers to produce content. And then the people behind that outlet were also behind another outlet that UL Graphica identified that was left-leaning called Peace Data, which again, recruited freelance writers who were really just looking for their big break and mostly didn't seem to have any idea of what was going on. So what do you make of this strategy of recruiting unwitting freelancers? Is that connected to the fact that these kinds of operations have become harder, as you said, like, should we expect to see more of it? What do you make of it? Yeah. And so actually, just to follow up on the law enforcement conversation and to set the record straight, I think it is actually U.S. law enforcement who detected the Peace Data website for the first time and communicated to the platforms about it. So let's let's take a step back and, and think about this, you know, use of unwitting freelancers. And when I think about it, it's actually also not new, right? So if you go back to 2016, the IRA was already working through unwitting Americans, right? They were using those fake personas to collaborate with activists who, of course, had no idea they were participating in a Russian operation. And that's that's a helpful tactic for these campaigns because it makes it harder to investigate, right? It's It's one thing to look at an account and say, well, that's a fake account and it's operated as as part of a bigger operation, but it's something else entirely to investigate if someone who's a real individual is actually taking part in an operation that they're not aware of, right? So it does make detection harder, which is why I think it's a popular technique with these with these operators. But once you detect it, of course, then more often than not, actually freelancers are willing to help unpack what happened, right? So it's, it's not a foolproof technique. And working you know with them we're able to better understand okay why the, the these operations reach out to them sometimes it's a very targeted outreach so in the case of both NABC and Peace Data what we saw were the actors actually looking for very specific freelancers whose writing they had identified and they thought would kind of fit with the brand of the fake outlet that they had put together for that operation and reaching that out to them specifically. And sometimes it's it's not targeted, right? Sometimes they actually just turn to freelance recruiting platform and say, hey, we need someone to do that. You know, can you please bid on this job? If you think about the 2020 campaigns, the first Russian information operation that we detected that was targeting that electoral cycle was exposed in December 2019. Uh, we worked with both CNN and Clemson University to, to detect it. And it was targeting Black audiences in the US using an NGO in Ghana, where most people who were handling the account did not know anything about the operation. That, again, is the same tactic that we see with those faux media outlets and you know, NABC and Peace Data. So one thing that's pretty substantially different, I think, in the internet ecosystem between now and 2016 is the rise of these alt tech platforms, which just didn't exist. Um, so we've mentioned, you know, these these were operations on Gab, Parler, which probably our listeners have heard before, and Patriots.win, which maybe they wouldn't have. It's now a standalone platform after a series of sort of misadventures, was originally a subreddit called The Donald, which maybe our listeners will have heard of before it was kicked off Reddit. 
And so it's interesting to sort of see these information operations move to this alt tech ecosystem. I I think that how this alt tech ecosystem develops is sort of one of these really big questions for the future of our information ecosystem, because in many ways, they just kind of don't care about information operations. I mean, one of the things that I find super hilarious here, I mean, in the haha democracy is doomed sense of hilarious is that these alt tech platforms are so committed to american first amendment free speech norms that they are just ignoring russian information operations and not taking them down is that right like i mean normally when you do a report and you you know notify platforms that you found these networks as i understand it and you can correct me if i'm wrong they will often take action against those networks that's not happening here is is that right and what do you make of how this might develop and is there any sort of difference in how an information operation might exploit these different platforms yes the dynamic that you're describing is generally what happens we work with major tech platforms and are able to expose some of these operations more often than not they do take action and it's also the dynamic that we're seeing when you know in our work with smaller platforms And it's true that smaller platforms and services do routinely come up in our investigation, right? So we were just talking about the freelance recruiting technique. That does mean that these operations will use things like Upwork or freelancer.com or, you know, payment platform like PayPal. And there's really a whole, like a whole universe of platforms and services that end up being affected by these issues. That's definitely something we saw very clearly in our work with the Electoral Integrity Partnership was the sort of ever-expanding list of platforms that we needed to contact for an open investigation or or for an open case, right? I think for me, the the widest ranging operations that I've ever seen in terms of spreading on many, many platforms at once was probably secondary infection. And for that one, I remember specifically that it even created content on the BuzzFeed community forum. So we worked with the BuzzFeed security team and they were great about it. And sorry, and before you go further, can I ask just for listeners who aren't familiar, if you could give a brief overview of secondary infection? Secondary infection is the name of a series of operations that originate in Russia that have been active for many years and that are unique for using many different platforms to spread very bad content. And so they use, for instance, a lot of forged documents and low-quality forgeries. They're also interesting because it is the operator behind the UK trade leaks incident in the uh, general election in the UK in 2019. And so we have seen many, you know, the big platforms, smaller platforms, platforms that are very social media centric, platforms that have different types of services, really routinely collaborate with us and with each other and with the research community. And it is indeed not what we have seen with alternative tech platforms. I think when we say alternative tech platforms, we mean the social media platforms that present themselves as alternative to major uh, mainstream platforms. And usually they're really making a case that they have a different philosophy on content moderation and on free speech. And, you know, in, in our experience, exposing notably the NABC campaign in 2020, when we reported and, and, and media reported on these fake accounts, you know, indeed, both Gab and Polair seem to have made the, the choice to actually keep the accounts online. That does mean that we had accounts who were part of an you know, information operation, an influence campaign 
to um, impact the 2020 election that remained online during the election and after the election. I do think that, you know, we need to have this, this, this conversation at industry level and at a regulatory level, right? Like, we need to, I've been joking about the idea of an alt-tech hearing. We need, to, we need to have a serious discussion on what it will take to have a whole of the industry and a whole of society effort to get to the bottom of these threats. And I do think that it will take the much more active collaboration of the alt-tech platforms. Yeah, it strikes me as kind of wild that we've now had, I don't know how many hearings with, you know, Mark, Jack and Sundar about information operations and the, you know, people on the Hill yell at them and they've been somewhat responsive. Like that's where this started. The first hearing was about the 2016 information operations and lawmakers haven't even bothered calling the alt tech platforms. And I wonder if it's because they know that yelling at them might not do anything um, or if anything, it might make it worse because it makes well, them Well, there's only into... one way to find out. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it makes them into free speech martyrs or, or something along those lines. So, yeah, it is, it is striking to me that whether they are succeeding or not, at least the mainstream, quote unquote, platforms are ostensibly saying they're trying to clean these things up, uh, whereas these alt tech platforms just don't seem to care. And so nobody seems to care. I, I don't know. It, it, it's a very striking dynamic. Yeah, it's interesting. We can definitely say that, you know, Twitter is is no longer the free speech wing of the free speech party and that, you know, the progress that we've made on, on some part of the industry, we're going to have to expand to the broader tech industry. I think in general, that is a trend that, that Evelyn, you've documented in, in your work uh, very thoroughly, right? That those content moderation questions and those security issues are going to, to take over the entire tech industry. They're, they're no longer a Facebook, Twitter, Google problem. They're definitely a, a you know, wider set of issues at the industry level. Totally. And it's just remarkable how quickly it's happened as well. Um, you know, we're talking about a, the space of a couple of years, all of this has, has sprung up. But speaking of how it's a problem across the entire industry, this is something that you and I have talked about a, a fair bit, which is the different definitions of information operations across different platforms and the gap between those definitions, between different platforms, but also between what sort of our audience, the general audience, the public might think information operations mean or what you know people call coordinated inauthentic behavior like it means something like it's this objectively knowable technical definition in the wild whereas it's actually only a facebook term and every platform has a different definition of what they take down um some of them you know we don't we don't even know really what their definition is. So I'm wondering if you, you know, as someone that is speaking to these platforms and uncovering these operations, could you sort of speak at a high level of how much divergence there is between the platform's definitions and, you know, whether that surprises you? Yeah, I think if you take the, 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 the broader framework of disinformation, there's an enormous amount of divergence on how people define disinformation. So it might be easier to sort of like really narrow our focus and talk about these information operations, right? Those influence campaign that are like the one I just described. And that, you know, should lead to like much narrower definition and perhaps like more consistent definition. It's not exactly the case. It is true indeed that the different policies that, that apply there continue to have different scopes between platforms. 
And that perhaps is okay, right? Like it's, it makes sense that those platforms would have different policies for, for different problems. They also, you know, these campaigns actually do manifest differently on these different platforms. They don't necessarily look the same. Today, if you think about this sort of family of policies, it is indeed what Facebook tends to call coordinated inauthentic behavior. It is what Twitter tends to call information operations. So in Facebook's definition, if you go back to the ABC framework, it really is the behavior that is important, right? It's regardless of who's behind it, regardless of the content of the operation, it's the behavior that, that's a determining factor in in this policy. For Twitter, the way they define information operation is actually more actor-centric. And so these are operations that they're able to attribute to a state actor. Google has its own terminology that comes up in the tag bulletins that are released quarterly. They use the words coordinated influence operations campaigns. And Reddit has actually also recently started to report on a regular cadence on those types of operations, which they put under the suspected manipulation headline. Can I just jump in and say, you know, Google's coordinated influence operation campaigns, it's like such a word salad. They just went and grabbed every sort of (laughs) relevant word in this space and chucked them all together. And I have no idea for the life of me what it means. I can't find sort of any description of this policy. Do you know what it means? Like, does it mean anything? So, you know, the, the great thing about information operation is it is one of the areas of content moderation where we have, as you know, the most visibility on what type of content is being taken down under this policy because they tend to do these disclosures. And so when a policy is kind of hard to understand, what we can do here is kind of reverse engineer the definition by looking at the data that is released and try to see, okay, well, if those, you know, if those campaigns of these accounts fall under this policy, what does it tell us about the contour of that specific policy? And so looking at the campaigns that are disclosed by Google in these coordinated influence operation campaigns header, I do think it's it's quite close to what Facebook and Twitter tend to, to define as CIB and IO. It's quite close, but of course, what's really interesting is sometimes you find campaigns that are sliced and diced differently by different platforms. And, and for researchers, you know, you see one object, right? You see a set of accounts that you can bound together and say, this is one operation. And then, of course, each platform is going to have its own vantage point on it and might do a different policy determination. So a good example here is Spamouflage, which is a very prolific China-based network that does a lot of cross-platform disinformation. And Facebook doesn't seem to consider Spamouflage to be CIB, seems to think about it more in the sort of spam Family, but Google does disclose spamouflage related takedown under this coordinated influence operations campaign header. It also does make Twitter's information operations category, despite the fact that we're not fully able to attribute spamouflage to an actual government actor. So it's always quite fun when you uh, zoom in into the details and you realize that everybody is approaching these same objects from a slightly different angle. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. 
And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Yeah, it just drives me crazy, though, that we're talking about reverse engineering off these sort of meager crumbs that they give us in their transparency reports to work out what they mean by these phrases and, you know, observe, oh, you know, Facebook didn't think this one was CIB. It just strikes me that that's probably not how this should be happening. But anyway, I'm, yeah. my grumpy complaint over. <laughs> no, I think that the, the grumpy complaint is, is well taken because the other risk of first is to take these categories too seriously, right? So in our work, for instance, we try to avoid policy wording, right? As you said, CIB is a Facebook category that Facebook made up to describe Facebook activity. And, you know, what, what is or what isn't CIB gets determined by a Facebook process. So when we think that we have an operation that's problematic, we work to make sure that we define it in our own terms and kind of, you know, let each platform do their own internal thinking and define sort of however they want it. But I think you're right in saying that we need to make sure that we continue defining, you know, these operations and, and these different types of threats for what they are, kind of regardless of what the platforms will will do with them, right? It's a it's kind of a trap to to go too far in adopting this this sort of very platform centric policy vocabulary because it, it muddies the water on what exactly are we talking about. 
So that speaks obviously to the question of how the platforms understand these operations. I also wanted to ask you about the role of the press and how the press understands them. I think there there was a period maybe early on in 2016, 2017, 2018, where it felt like any time there was any reporting on an information operation, it was just kind of, you know, splashed all over the headlines that, you know, the Russians <laughs> were back at it again. And then maybe you would find a paragraph, you know, like buried on the second page if it were in the paper saying actually it wasn't all that you know didn't get that much coverage right not not that many people retweeted the tweets not that many people clicked on the link do you think that the press has gotten any better at sort of understanding the the technical aspects of what platforms and researchers are doing here and the the role of sort of understanding the effectiveness or a success of an operation or the lack of success over the last few years absolutely I think it's it's very clear over the past, you know, four years. And and it's clear on, on sort of different levels, right? Like I have seen the media become much better at covering disinformation and information operations, at you know, being more thoughtful in their coverage, avoiding unnecessary amplification, taking the necessary precautions to ensure that what needs to be exposed and documented is exposed and documented, and what traps to be avoided gets avoided. So that's that's one way. The other thing is, of course, the media has become really good too at investigating and exposing these types of operations. We often think that platforms uh, are the only ones sort of, you know, finding these operations, but, but that's of course not true, right? Like independent researchers continue to do so and investigative reporters in those large media outlets and, and smaller media outlets around the world continue to be a really important force of how we learn about new types of operations. And then finally, I've, I've seen the media become also much better at crafting thoughtful policies around these issues, right? And that can range from what's our policy regarding leaked material whose provenance we can't identify to what are our policies to support and protect the reporters who work on these topics, right? Protect them from harassment campaigns, protecting them from being uh, the target of disinformation campaigns themselves, because it's not an easy topic to cover. And I've been very encouraged to see media organizations take the lead on also protecting the people who are doing this work. Yeah, I'd love to follow up on that, actually, because I think it's it's a fascinating and troubling problem and something I've been watching a lot recently of this kind of trend of reporters getting a lot of harassment for their reporting on disinformation, for their reporting on the far right, certain aspects of the Republican Party. And it does seem to me like, as you say, like some news organizations do seem to be taking this seriously and developing policies. On the other hand, others seem kind of painfully behind the times or, you know, struggling to figure out what they need to respond to and how and what they should just you know, brush off. So I want to I want to push you on this a little bit. Like, do you think that we're, you know, let's say in a year, if we come back, are we going to be in a space where, say, most news organizations have some kind of a stable policy for, you know, here's what we'll do if our reporter is harassed, the subject of a disinformation campaign or misinformation campaign, something like that? Is that where we're we're moving toward? I wish I were as optimistic as you. Yeah, that's where I want to be. And I think here I'm highlighting the leadership of specific news organizations, but this is this is a problem for the entire industry, right? It's a problem for platforms and companies too, who do need to 
support and protect the people who are working on these issues. It's also a problem for academics who are working on these issues and for everybody in, in civil society. And I think here, I'm also encouraged by seeing philanthropic groups ask these questions and ask, how do we meaningfully support the people who do the work when we fund work on disinformation and on exposing online harms? So I'm, I'm generally encouraged to see, again, like both you know, progress on different sides of the field and people who are, for instance, in, in a funding position ask, how do we make sure that when we fund this work, we also fund what is necessary to protect the people on the front lines who are doing this work? I'm hoping that everybody's going to be moving in the right direction here, but it's definitely not just a, a news problem. It's a problem across the field. So one one more question on this kind of line of discussion. I think that I totally agree with you that the press has become a lot better about reporting on information operations and sort of being careful and circumspect about, you know, the distinction between whether an operation existed versus whether it was successful. On the other hand, I don't know whether those distinctions have kind of trickled down to the public yet. I feel like, you know, if I talk about this with someone on the street, the odds that they're worried about how, you know, the Russians are going to change people's minds by showing them, you know, photos on Instagram or something like that is still maybe more prevalent than you would want it to be, that that sort of nuance hasn't quite trickled down. How how big do you think that that gap is between sort of how researchers and now the press understand information operations and how the public understands them and their effectiveness? Perhaps what's going on here is that disinformation is very top of mind for people. It has been a key concern during the pandemic. It has been a key concern during the election. And it's true that we have talked so much about Russian interference and, you know, many people still have in mind those images of Senate hearings where the the Russian, you know, Facebook posts were printed out on posters. And so we talked a lot about these interference campaigns, these information operations in the context of disinformation and perhaps people kind of over-index their understanding of disinformation on this. In reality, a lot of the disinformation issues that we faced during the election and during the pandemic have nothing to do with information operations, right? They're closer to other types of disinformation related to conspiracy theories. They're closer to networks of real people and not fake accounts sort of spreading, uh, spreading lies and spreading disinformation. There are other types of disinformation issues. They're not information operations. But again, I think because we talked so much about it in 2016, in 2017, and because the platform has really communicated about their efforts to root out information operations, it does continue to be very top of mind for people. But I think that gets to a really interesting part of this, which is that I think the general narrative was that 2020 was broadly a success story when it came to foreign interference on on social media. You know, there was no you know, no repeat of the 2016 fiasco where platforms were caught with their information operation pants down, and you know the main disinformation came from you know well the 
the, the president. Um, and so I think that there was this sort of general narrative that the platforms had sort of learnt from 2016. And, you know, as we've been talking about, the, the, the campaigns were getting much less traction. They weren't sitting around for years and years uh, cultivating audiences. Um, platforms were moving a lot more quickly on sort of foreign interference and, and that kind of thing. But the domestic interference was sort of the new frontier. Do you think that general narrative is right? And do you think that that is because of platforms doing better and trying harder? Or is it something like there are fewer foreign information operations because they watch, um, you know, Americans uh, sort of doing doing the job well enough for themselves and think, oh, we'll just leave them to it? <laughs> I think I would be worried to say that, you know, uh, the disinformation efforts in 2020 were generally a success story. I think uh, there was still a lot of struggle with massive disinformation campaign. And it's it's important to sort of state that, right? Disinformation was a real issue in the 2020 election in the US. Now, if we take the narrow category of foreign interference, it is true that while there were at least you know 12 different attempts by three different states to do foreign interference campaign on social media, those campaigns were detected early on and were deactivated early on. And that those specific you know narrow efforts around foreign interference were indeed fairly successful. Is it the platforms? Yes, and everybody else around them, right? There was a lot more investment from the platforms to proactively detect and um, remove these uh, foreign interference campaign. There was also a real involvement from the US government. There was also a real uh, focus of civil society researchers, uh, investigative reporters. I think it really was a sort of a whole of society focus. And it talks about the professionalization of that field too, right? At that stage, you know, there are a set of practices that we can follow to go faster, to be more rigorous, to be more collaborative in how we detect and expose these operations. I think it's also worth flagging, obviously, that, you know, you were, we've been focusing on online influence operations from abroad. But, of course, the, the report that was released by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence under its, its new Biden-appointed director, Avril Haines, which I feel like I should emphasize, released a report on 2020 election influence efforts that chronicles, among other things, Russian operations not only online, but efforts by the Russian intelligence services to launder information damaging to Biden through U.S. media and officials, um, including through Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, which then became an obsession of both President Trump and media like Fox. Um, and there's a sort of obvious parallel that jumped out to me here between this and 2016, and that the, the 2016 interference effort obviously involved not only the sort of online trolling component, but also the hack and leak operation that successfully led to enormous press coverage of Hillary Clinton and John Podesta's emails. And I think there's a, a good argument, which Thomas Ridd has made on this podcast that the American public maybe focused too much on the trolling part of the equation rather than on the hack and leak, which was arguably more effective in sort of shaping American conversation. So all of this is a very long windup to, to ask if you have any thoughts on sort of how we should understand the relationship between online influence efforts like the one that we're talking about now and efforts to manipulate press. Sort of are they two halves of the same whole? Are they different in kind? What do you think? 
Absolutely. And that ODNI document, you know, answers Evelyn's question, right? That the foreign actors stop trying or are we just getting better at detecting them? The answer is very clearly, um, we are getting better at detecting them. They did not stop trying. And when you contrast the ODNI assessment from 2017, which of course looks back on the 2016 election, and the one from 2021, which looks back at the 2020 election, you realize that that maturing is is evident in the way we talk about it. So in the 2017 ODNI assessment, a lot of the part on information operation really focuses on state-funded media, right, on Russia today. There's actually very little public discussion in that unclassified assessment of the IRA and that campaign. Whereas if you look at the 2021 assessment, there's an in-depth sort of section on all the different types of influence operations, uh, where they were coming from, how they operated. There's even a new proposed definition. There's a reshaping of what we consider an overt and covert. So you can see the maturing of the IC's thinking on these issues and of the public debates thinking of the public debate sort of terms that we use to talk about these issues. Now, do influence operations matter more or less than the other type of hacking efforts? That's a difficult conversation to to have because at times they go hand in hand. And so we have seen many actors use information operations to enhance their cyber operations and really operate on a continuum, right? The same actors, both doing the influence campaign and doing, for instance, the hacking and exfiltrating of documents. And we've also seen actors that only do one of these things and, you know, wouldn't even know where to start in doing the other. So while again, sometimes they do go hand in hand, uh, they're also a little bit different different worlds and, and tend to also be different actors. So one of the things that we've been talking about is how, you know, this is a whole of society thing and how many different stakeholders there are involved in unearthing and combating this kind of activity. And so I sort of want to take a bit of a hard pivot to talk a little bit about that and a a sort of fun thing that is happening in in Europe. So our listeners might have noticed, and we've we've mentioned it at the top, that you are French, Camille, (laughs) and I can't help but ask you about something that uh, your president, Emmanuel Macron, said earlier this month, which was that France was going to set up a national agency for the fight against manipulations of information, uh, whose job it is to unearth bots and trolls seeking to shape the political debate in France in advance of the French election next year. But the thing that's really cool about this uh, is he said that it would be a French state version of Graphica. So they're bringing you in-house. They are, um, they're coming for your job, specifically referencing your company. So, I mean, first, uh, cool. Uh, congrats that you are like now a category of, <laughs> of service. But also, second, um, what the hell? Um, <laughs> I kind of want to know what your reaction was to that statement and whether you think that what you do is the kind of thing that governments should be doing as opposed to private companies or or civil society. Yeah, so I saw that. (laughs) I read it twice. I had a good laugh. Um, I said, mais non, and I called my mom and, you know, I went through the motions. (laughs) It was, um, it was, of course, you know, jokes aside, it was great validation for me to read that, right? Because when we started the team a few years ago, it was a bit of a wild bet, right, to figure out like, 
is there a role for for like groups who are going to work with the rest of the stakeholders and who are going to investigate and expose these types of campaigns? And so, of course, it's great validation for the idea that, yes, you can have groups and organizations focused on doing this and doing this effectively. Now, the thing that's very different in the French context than in the U.S. context is when you think about protecting the 2020 election, a lot of what we've learned also comes from the fact that in the U.S. in 2017, there was a real reckoning with what had happened in 2016. There were a series of congressional hearings, there were a series of different efforts during, you know, at the platforms to really get to the bottom of what had happened with this campaign to influence the 2016 election. A lot of data was shared publicly. That data was used by many people in the field, researchers, again, civil society people, journalists, to also gain a deeper understanding of what it means when a foreign actor uses social media to target an election in the US. That data also fueled further discoveries. For instance, the team of professors at Clemson University who helped uncover the December 2019 IRA campaign that was conducted from Ghana were working from IRA data that had been shared by the platforms in previous efforts. That situation hasn't happened in France. And so, you know, you could compare the Russian interference attempts in France in 2017 around Emmanuel Macron's election, around the Macron leaks to kind of, you know, the French equivalent of the 2016 campaign, but it didn't trigger a wave of reckoning. It didn't trigger transparency for, for the public on what exactly had happened. It didn't trigger public data being shared. And so France is entering the protection of its next election here with a lag because it hasn't been able to really learn and start a public learning process from what went, you know, what went wrong in the previous election. I do think that governments have a very important role to play in the way we tackle these types of threats. Of course, they have a regulatory role, both for the platforms and for establishing norms of what governments should and shouldn't do in cyberspace. And they also can play a role, you know, proactively identifying and exposing these operations. We saw the U.S. government do that starting in 2018, proactively detecting foreign interference campaigns and telling the platforms about them. Of course, when that happens, the platforms tend to do their own investigation and then tend to publicly announce both that they have taken action and that this action was based on a tip that they got from the US government. So there really is a role to play for governments in both getting the information out, creating transparency, creating the right frameworks for platform accountability, creating the right normative frameworks, and even playing their own role of exposing and, and detecting these operations. I don't think this is exactly what we do at, at Graphica, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm, you know, I, I of course welcome the, the, the French government being much more active in, in the defense against foreign interference. So not to, not to pick on the French government, but we did want to ask one more question about them. 
Graphica released a report in December of last year that I think didn't get enough attention, uh, not the least because the title of it was More Troll Combat. Um, <laughs> but it touches on some actions taken by the French government that I think are really interesting. Could you just give us a, a super high-level overview of what that report found? Yeah, uh, More Troll Combat report was, um, it was quite the story. So More Troll Combat actually covers two different influence operations that are going head-to-head, posting competing narratives in the same groups, commenting on each other's posts, and sometimes even going as far as to call each other out as being fake news and even DMing each other. All of this you know, takes place in the context of them fighting for influence in Central African Republic primarily, and posting heavily about local politics, the forthcoming elections, and sort of the overall geopolitical context there. It was the first time for us that we've had that chance to really observe two operations trolling each other directly in this way. And it was a very odd report to write. So, you know, there was, again, like a Russian operation, which was quite focused on, you know, the upcoming Central African Republic election, local politics, praising Russia's engagement locally, and attacking France and attacking the local UN mission. And in front of it, there was a French operation, which itself was not actually focused on the Central African Republic election and not talking about the election, but instead fully focused on the Russian operation and on exposing the Russian troll operation. Similar tactics, different goals, uh, but yeah, it was it was a very meta as a as a report. It's interesting that you say similar tactics, different goals, right? Because as we were talking about earlier, when platforms and things try and combat these operations, they like to say that they're focusing on behavior rather than content. And I think it shows just how murky this entire area can get when we have, you know, I guess what the French government would sort of say is trolling for good, right? But then how do you distinguish that from trolling for bad if you're not going to look at the, at the content? And so I think it's fascinating to see different actors getting, getting in the game, I suppose, or, you know, they've been in the game for a long time, but we haven't really sort of talked about how to draw those lines and what do we think of, you know, democratic governments getting involved. And it was interesting to see the French government's reaction to Facebook's takedown here, where it was pretty angry at Facebook for for going public. So, I I, I mean, it's sort of more of a comment than a question, but I I just sort of wonder, is this something we're going to see more of? Or is this sort of, was this a a weird, you know, aberration that was just a sort of wild situation? Or, Or what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, let let me start by saying that I actually don't think that there are good uses of these techniques, right? It at the end of the day, it does weaken public debate, it does weaken the trust in online conversations. And so I I personally don't think that there is such a thing as good trolling. What's really interesting here is when you look at what looks like the origin of this French network. It takes you to Mali and to a countering violent extremism operation. And I do think that for a little while, there was this idea that it was okay to do fake profile and fake engagement on social media for the purpose of countering extremist propaganda. There's a lot to explore there. 
But to your second question, I do think that intent matters. And here, while we see the Russian operation and the French operation use the same tactics, there clearly is in the Russian operation an intent to interfere in an election, and in the French operation, an intent to expose the Russian operation. So they are actually very different in their objectives. I will say it was particularly disheartening to see the French government, or at least to see this French operation, because the French government had made a quite clear statement in publishing a report which was jointly released by the French diplomatic services and the sort of army research institute on how to tackle information manipulation in which they they had said that they strongly believe that democratic countries should not engage in these type of techniques. So, you know, it was surprising. As you said, we didn't really get to the bottom of it because the French government said that they would do an internal uh, investigation. And we've, of course, never heard back. The other thing that was really odd and very interesting when all of this came out is Politico also reported on the fact that prior to the Facebook announcement exposing the French operation, the French government had itself contacted Facebook to ask Facebook to take down the fake Russian pages in Central African Republic that they were interacting with. And so I think that also raises question on how many governments are actually, you know, using these policies to engage with the platforms and say, hey, I think that they are, you know, fake pages here and fake pages there. And how, how much visibility do we have when they do that? Finally, I think something that's regretful here is the French government indeed kind of immediately say like, oh, we don't know what, what this is about. And, and they also said something that I think was at the heart of it, an interesting question. They said, because this campaign was exposed at the same moment that we started having very important European-wide conversations on regulation, we would like to know how much those platforms are using those disclosures to achieve their own objectives? That's a fair question. All right. Well, I think that is all the time we have. Camille, as always, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for, for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright. And our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.